Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. No, it wouldn't be better to be at the beach. It's good to be here. Amen. That's what first service is for. Go to first service and go to the beach. I was here April 10th. Anybody remember me being here April 10th? I came with King James. We just finished our three-month uh, trip across um, the south. And uh, so now Pastor Freddie said, we're going down to Florida. Do you still have August 7th open? I'm like, sure. And so here I am. And uh, King James was not able to be with me today. He did his very first wedding yesterday, and uh, he had to stay with family and stuff. So I brought my good friend, Jonathan St. Clair. Wave at everybody, Jonathan. So Jonathan's been, uh, he came down with me yesterday. Uh, we spent last night at a hotel in Manchester, had dinner with the pastor uh, and his wife last night, and uh, we were preaching the 9 o'clock this morning, 11 o'clock, and then we had to go to Biddeford, Maine, and do a 3 o'clock. So uh, being three and a half hours uh, kind of away, it was just easier to come in yesterday and uh, spend the night. So um, John, Jonathan will help you at the table if you want to get uh, today's message or books or whatever, just see him and help you, he'll help you out. Amen. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to preach a word today that's going to probably be a little hard, but you're still going to love me, right? Just lie to me anyway and tell me you will. Okay. Matthew 16. While you're turning there, I just want to tell you about a little story about a farmer who had some family members that was coming to spend the weekend with him and his wife, and they kind of wanted to roll out the red carpet, you know, and make the guest feel super special. I guess as much red carpet as a farmer can roll out. And so they made a great breakfast, and the wife went out to the hen house and picked the farm fresh eggs from the hen house and made scrambled eggs. And she also used eggs to make homemade French toast with the bread that she had baked. And the husband went out and slaughtered the pig and made sausage and ham steaks and bacon, and it was just a great breakfast. But what I want you to notice about the story is the chicken made a contribution to breakfast. But the pig was committed to breakfast, right? So in light of that, my question to us today is this. Are you a pig or are you a chicken? Are you a pig or are you a chicken? In other words, are you satisfied with just making a contribution to the cause of Christ, or are you truly committed to Christ? Are you content to give a little here, give a little there, but yet you refuse to take up your cross and follow him to Calvary, or do you desire to take up your cross and then lay it down and die upon that cross, uh, crucifying the flesh so that God can resurrect you in power and new life? So I want to read Matthew 16, starting with verse 24. It reads, Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will recompense or reward every man according to his deeds. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus kind of declares the same message. And then he says these words, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying to those that were desiring to follow him, to be a disciple of his, that they were going to have to make him the Lord of their life. They were going to have to be committed. They're going to have to take up their cross and follow him to a place of death. You know, we hear that word commitment today, and I don't know if we really understand what commitment means. I think for too many people, 
commitment means? Well, I'll do my best to make it. I'll try to be there. But if something better comes along or if I just don't feel it, well, then I'm not going to show up. You've got to understand and you can't hold me to it. Same in or ouch. And that definition of commitment is really destroying marriages today. It's destroying families. It's destroying churches. We stick with things until things don't go our way. Then we pack it up and we go. And we feel justified because, hey, we tried, and that's good enough for me. But can I share with you a definition of the word commitment? It's this, sticking with something or someone when everything inside of you and around you says pack it up and run. You see, most people, they fail to realize that commitment is a serious thing. We've kind of cheapened it to where it almost means nothing. It used to be that when a business arrangement was made, you would kind of declare what you're going to do. They would declare what they're going to do, and you'd shake hands on it, and it was a done deal. Not anymore. Now we have to have, you know, uh, uh, legal documents signed, papers notarized. People have to get attorneys, you know, because people can't stick with their word, right? And we may not be able to change the world's definition of commitment, but I think for us as Christians, we should have a higher standard of commitment. Amen? I think when a Christian says they're going to be somewhere, guess what? They should be there. If a Christian says they're going to do something, guess what? They should do it, right? I think if you're going to be a Christian and you have a job, you should be the most committed employee in the place, right? I think it's sad and quite ridiculous that we have to babysit adult Christians. You know what I mean by that? We have to have people follow up and check up on you because we don't know if you're really going to show up when you signed up. We don't know if you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So we've got to check up on you, right? Now, before you get your nose bent out of shape, I understand accidents happen, unforeseen circumstances pop up, sickness will arise. But folks, I think that those kind of things, I think they should be far and few between, right? But I have discovered in my 52 years of life, it is not usually the case. Usually the case is, I'm too tired, I don't feel like it, something's on Netflix, I just don't want to go, and we give some other self-centered excuse, right? Again, same in or ouch. Now, I've had my run-ins with people like this. You've probably had your run-ins with people like that. And can I tell you, it doesn't speak well of the person, especially their Christian testimony. I'm a firm believer, if you say you're going to do it, do it. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no, because if you speak out of both sides of your mouth, no one's going to take you seriously. Amen? Now, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus has this large multitude of people that are following after him. You ever notice he starts getting a big crowd? He'll say stuff to dwindle the crowd, right? So he has this large group of people that are following him. So he starts speaking about commitment. Why? Because he knew that some people were just following him for the miracles and the free lunches. They didn't really want to be a disciple of Jesus. They just want to be a bystander who gets to enjoy the blessings, right? It's kind of like family reunions. You know all family reunions are the same? Everybody at the family reunion is divided into two groups of people. Those who stand around, shoot the breeze, chew the fat, and then those who get the lunch ready. You know what I mean? There's one group that's working and the other group just gets the benefits, right? And here in American Christianity, what we have done in our churches is we have taught people to come to Jesus by saying a simple prayer. We ask people to accept Jesus into their heart and then everything's going to be okay. It's all good, and you're on your way to heaven. But what that really is, is that's asking people to make a decision for Jesus. It's really not asking people to make a commitment to Jesus, right? Jesus said in Luke 6, the, the, six, the one who comes to him 
and hears his word and then does his word would be like a person who built his house upon the rock and he'll survive the storm. But the person who comes to him and hears his word but refuses to do it will be like the man who builds his house upon the sand and in the end he and the house will be destroyed. Listen, that's just one example of what Jesus gave. But if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus gives all kinds of examples like this. So when we look at what Jesus really said versus what we've been saying behind the pulpit for years, folks, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Jesus is serious about this word commitment. And there's too many people in the church that think that they can have this casual relationship with Jesus, obey him when they want to, serve him with its convenient, and then they're going to stroll through the pearly gates and give God a big high five like they're best buddies. Well, they might want to think again because Jesus is serious about commitment. Amen? He said if we really want to be his disciples, then we're going to have to follow him all the way to a cross, right? Some people are following Jesus for the blessings, but they didn't want the burden he carried. And I think that's where a good number of our Christians are in America today. Come on, let's be honest. Too many of us want the miracles, the free lunches. We want the blessings, right, that come with Christianity. But we don't want the obedience, the faithfulness, or the commitment that it takes to follow after Christ. So I believe the American church is experiencing a crisis. I believe for years we have preached a cheap gospel. We have peddled a soft Savior. We have taught salvation without self-denial. We have taught a crown without a cross. We have catered to the unsaved, and we have compromised with the world. And now it seems we're paying the price for our lack of commitment. We've got a lot of people coming to Christ today that are simply mouthing the words of a prayer and then trying to behave, modify their behavior. And they're getting, they're getting what we call behavior modification, but they're not getting salvation. I believe the church really has to start to wake it up to what's happening and get back to what Jesus commanded us to do, and that is make disciples. Make disciples. Folks, a large church doesn't mean it's a successful church. A successful church is not a church that has a big building. It's not a successful church just because there's a lot of people or it has big offerings. A successful church is how many disciples are being made. And we have a whole bunch of churches all across America that are filled with people who believe in Jesus, but they're not really disciples of Jesus. Does that make sense? They believe in Jesus, but they're not a disciple of Jesus. And there's a big difference between being a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus, because a lot of people that follow Jesus, they make a confession with their mouth, but they keep living their old lifestyle. That's not what a disciple is. A disciple is to become a pattern of the person that you're following, right? So, what we've done is we have accepted this non-commitment message that's been ringing behind our pulpits for decades to now the people in our church are faithful to be non-committed. I mean, they're literally faithful to be non-committed. You can't nail them down for anything. You can't get them to commit to anything because we've done that to ourselves. Statisticians will tell us if you want to you know, have a growing church today, here's what you have to do. To keep your congregation happy, you have one service a week, you keep it less than an hour. You have more music than message. You make the message light, positive, and non-threatening. Why? Because if you preach the Bible the way the Bible is written, people won't like it, they'll leave the church, and then you won't have enough money to build your new fitness center. Huh? Folks, I'm telling you, our non-commitment salvation messages have dishonored God, and they have deluded men. Our faulty seeds have now produced a flaky harvest. No wonder it is hard to find mature Christians in the church because we have babied them for so long they don't want to grow up. 
We've got too many that are acting like they're living in some, you know, Peter Pan, never, never Christian land where they want to stay a child forever. But folks, we've got to learn to grow up in the, in the things of God. Amen? You might ask, well, what's the difference between being a child and an adult? Well, the answer is maturity. Right? Isn't that the difference? Maturity means I walk in obedience even when I don't feel like it. It means I suck it up and I do the thing that I don't enjoy doing because it needs to be done. Come on, we got an epidemic of people in America today that won't go to work. Huh? Can't get them to work. Listen, that's because they're babies. I'll say it because I'm not on live stream, but I'll say it. We got way too many babies, right? Come on, suck it up and mature. Grow up, right? Listen, there's a lot of us that hate our jobs, but we get up and we go to it anyway. Why? Because we have bills to pay. We have family to support, right? So we do the thing that we might not want to do. That's maturity. That's what separates the men from the boys. So what kind of commitment do we really have as a believer if it calls for almost no personal sacrifice on our part, produces virtually no separation from the world, and breeds practically no hatred for sin? I mean, how can we really say we're a disciple of Jesus if my life and my philosophies of life are no different than the world's? How do we call ourselves citizens of heaven when our hearts are caught up in earthly treasures? When we sing that song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, and then we sit in front of the television and get entertained by the devil's worst children. How do we claim to be dead to the world when we're more interested in things than souls? Does it seem like our level of commitment to Jesus is in jeopardy? Yes, it is. And Jesus made it painfully clear to the large crowds traveling with him in Luke 14, 26. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When we hear words like this, we have to take a moment and ask ourselves some serious questions soul-searching questions. Questions like, am I carrying my cross every day to follow Jesus? Am I saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions? Am I living a self-controlled, pure, holy life before God in this present evil age? Because if you read Ephesians, Paul warned the Ephesians, he said, don't let anyone deceive you because no immoral, impure, or greedy person will have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And yet we have so many of God's people that think that God's standards have changed and that carnal Christians will just one day end up in a carnal heaven. Folks, that's not true. The Bible says holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what was it that Jesus was saying to these people when he said, take up your cross and follow me? It had to mean something to the people of Jesus' day. This is what it meant. Jesus was saying, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die. Folks, that, that cross, that symbol of the cross, that was not a symbol of Christianity when Jesus said it. It was not a cool logo on a t-shirt. It was not some nice form for jewelry. The cross was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of execution. That would be like you ladies wearing little electric chair necklaces or earrings. It probably would not be your first choice, right? The crucifixion was one of the most hideous forms of execution ever devised by mankind, the worst form of death at the time, reserved for slaves and rebels. There was no greater suffering, no greater humiliation than a crucifixion. The condemned person first would usually be beaten 
so literally their back would look like ground beef. Then they would be exposed to public humiliation, usually stripped naked and paraded through the streets. And then they would be taken out to be crucified. Just think about the utter horror that if you were the criminal and you're standing in front of the judge and he gives the verdict, crucify him. Think of the utter horror that would fill your mind because the cross meant suffering, the cross meant agony, the cross meant death. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He's saying, if you're going to be a committed disciple, not just a follower, but if you're going to be a committed disciple, you're going to have to die in order to live. Can I tell you that the world and everybody in the world today is divided into two groups of people? First, there are those people who are living now just to die later. They're living what they call life, and then they're going to die, and they're going to find out that it is an eternal death because they don't know Jesus. There's a second group of people, and those people are dying now so they can live forever. They're letting the flesh be crucified now so that they can have eternal life with Christ. Amen? I don't know about you, but I want to be the ones who's dying now so that I can live later. Amen? I, I want to crucify this flesh so that God will raise me up one day with him. So I want to close today by just real quickly sharing with you four things about the crucifixion. Four things about the crucifixion. Number one, the crucifixion means death. I mean, the accused person... They're saying bye-bye to this world. Never going to see their loved ones again on this side of the grave. Their earthly eyes are about to close in death. No more sunsets, no more sunrises, no more vacation. The convicted man's plans and pursuits are over. They're reaching the very end of their life. There's no time to think about the future. What a frightful thing it is to lose one's life. We look at death, and we think death is so final. But can I tell you for the believer, death to our flesh is the first step to really being fruitful. Not just bearing our cross, but actually laying down on it and dying there. That's commitment. I remember when I was a little kid, I should say younger because I don't know if I was ever little. But when I was a younger kid, <laughs> I used to play cops and robbers with my brother, right? We used to play cowboys and Indians, but that's culturally inappropriate to say now. So we used to play cops and robbers too. And, you know, we'd get our finger out and we'd point it at each other and, pew, pew, and we'd shoot at each other. And, of course, you knew when he got hit and then you'd fall down and you'd play dead. And I remember we're in this intense battle, and he got me, and he got me several times, but I wouldn't fall over and play dead. And he kept shooting, but I wouldn't fall over. And he got so angry and frustrated, he threw his hands down at his side, and he said, you're supposed to be dead! Now think about that for a moment. Because I think there's a lot of Christians that are living their Christian life, and God is putting situations in the life to help design and design to help us crucify our flesh but we resist them, and we continue on with our life and live it the way we want, and we allow the flesh to say, stay so strong and so healthy. All the while, God's trying to get us to kill the flesh, right? He wants to resurrect us in new life and new power, but he can't until the flesh dies. And I believe God is watching us, and he's watching us as we cling to life, and he watches us as we struggle through unneeded agony and burdens and trials, and all along, God is simply saying, hey, you're supposed to be dead because, folks, it's when we're dead, when we die, you deal with things differently. When you're dead, you don't react the same way you used to, right? You know how hard it is to get a dead man mad at you? Try it sometime. Huh? How hard is it to get a dead man angry at you? Huh? How hard is it to get a dead man to commit a sin? Folks, when we crucify the flesh and when we die, our whole outlook starts to change. 
And it's easy to sit in church and sound religious and pious and holy, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, have I died? Can I really truly say, Father, it's not my will, but it's your will be done, knowing that that will is going to lead down a dusty path to a cross where there I'm going to die. So following Jesus in total commitment means death to our dreams, our desires, and our life. We're supposed to be dead. Secondly, the crucifixion means we're done with sin. We're done with sin. Lust and fleshly passions are now a thing of the past. Listen, the crucified thief steals no more. The crucified killer kills no more. The crucified rapist rapes no more. The carnal cravings can never again be fulfilled. And here's a good note. Romans chapter 6 tells us this is what happened to us. Romans 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Folks, as Christians, we really no longer have the right to sin. And we can't sit back in stubborn pride trying to justify our ongoing sinful life. We can't say, well, you know, I'm just trying to live a balanced life and that's why I'm so liberal as a Christian. No, we can't seek to legitimize our sin and then slap a Jesus sticker on it and expect it to be okay. We're to be done with sin. The third thing the crucifixion means is it's a denial of self. You're denying yourself because the crucified man is no longer his own. What's well, the same with us? The Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Jesus told us to deny yourself. I mean, what does that mean? Do I go home in the afternoon and get a whip and start whipping my back? Is that what it means to deny myself? I mean, do I wear sackcloth and ashes and mope around in despair? Do I sell everything that I have and go be some homeless vagabond on the street living in a cardboard box and give up all the niceties of life? No, it's not what that means. It's a big no to all of those questions. Denying ourselves simply says no to our desires. It's kind of like going on a diet. Has anybody ever gone on a diet, huh? Garfield the cat says diet is die with the T at the end. You know, that's how it feels, right? You're saying no to the pizza and yes to the carrot sticks. You're saying no to the ice cream and yes to the rice cakes, right? You're denying yourself. But sadly, we live in this society of Christians today where nobody wants to deny themselves much of anything. I don't want to give up too much for God because if I do, God will start to wear out his welcome. I mean, as long as God doesn't request too much of me, he and I will get along great. But the moment he starts to get too personal with me, gets a little too demanding, well, I'm going to pull back and say anything I can to help me sleep at night. Say amen or ouch. Christians want to dance and shout and have a party with Jesus, but very few today want to suffer with him. Very few of us want to deny anything of ourselves for the Lord. But can I tell you that an easy, non-self-denying life is never going to be one of power? It's amazing how many Christians can't stand or deny themselves to fast, to pray, to read the Bible, or to come to church. But then you'll hear them say, oh, I love Jesus. I love him so much. I'd die for Jesus. huh? I'd die for Jesus. Well, we're not asking you to put your head on the guillotine, but it'd be nice if you could just live for him. And I think that's really the part of the problem right there. Too many Christians would rather die for Jesus and live for self rather than die to self and live for Jesus. Huh? Too many Christians would rather die for Jesus and live for self than die to self and live for Jesus, right? Too many of us were so sensitive to our flesh 
that at the slightest little whisper, we jump at the command of the flesh. But yet we're so deaf to the Spirit of God, we can't seem to hear Him speak, right? Too many of us are guilty of doing our own thing, doing what we want, and we have forgotten God expects something from me as well. Folks, God didn't save you to make you happy. He saved you to make you holy. Amen? And when we walk in holiness, we're going to experience true joy like never before. The great revivalist Leonard Ravenhill said it this way, and I can't think of a better way to say it. He said, it's not that Christians don't love God. It's they love something more than they love God. And folks, that's true. That's so true. I travel this country. I'm in a different church every Sunday, and I've been doing it for 12 years. And I don't doubt that the people that are in our churches sitting in the pews or sitting in the seats, I don't doubt they love God. But they love something more than they love God. And most of us have to admit that we love something more than we love God when we really examine the way we live our life. Because if God was number one in our life, our life would be lived different. So the crucifixion means death. It means redundant with sin. It means a denial of self. But fourth and finally, the crucifixion always points to a resurrection. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to suffer. But except the kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains there for a single kernel. But if it dies, it will germinate and it will produce many seeds, right? Folks, we have to remember, if you want God to resurrect you in new life and new power, then you have to die. Because God only resurrects dead things. You can't resurrect something if it's still alive. It's got to die, right? So we have to stop trying to make room for ourselves in life and just get on the cross and die. If you look at the Apostle Paul, and you think about this man who wrote most of the New Testament, here's a guy who was literally a holy terror. He was a holy terror, right? I mean, this guy prayed without ceasing. He preached without cowering. He was the kind of man that would raise the dead and rattle the devil. And wherever he went, either revival broke out or a riot broke out. That's just how it was. But listen, that life of great power did not come without a price. What was the key to Paul's successful ministry? He died. He said, it's no longer I that liveth. It's Christ who lives in me, right? And Paul said that he counted all things as loss, as manure, as feces, as dung. If we were in the deep state of Texas, we'd say a four-letter S word, but we're not there, so we won't say it. But he said it's all dung. Listen, Paul learned that nothing in this world will compare to Christ. No man's lifetime of works or accomplishments will compare to Christ. It's all dung in comparison. And folks, I'm telling you, on Judgment Day, there are going to be these people who will stand before Jesus, these deluded souls that will have in their hands clenched all these things that they worked for, all these things that they're trying to hold on to, these things who they, they compromised their walk with God for the things of the world. They put money, they put career, they put family before God, and now they're holding in their hand the epitome of everything they worked for, and the angels are going to come and begin to pry their fingers back to see what is it that they're clenching onto, what is it that they gave up Jesus for, and they're going to be clenching on the fistfuls of dung, and they will discover that they, in all their striving and all their getting, ended up with nothing but a handful of manure. 
and how they will weep and how they will wail when they look into the face of the one who is altogether lovely and say, I gave up him for fistfuls of dung. But friend, by then, it'd be too late. I don't know about you, but I don't want you to be one of those people. I don't want to be one of these people. I want to be committed like Paul the Apostle who counted all things as loss, who said in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I don't know about you, but I love knowing Jesus as Savior, right? It's great knowing him as a miracle worker. It's also awesome knowing him as a healer, as a deliverer, as a joy giver. But how many of us in this room can really say today, I know Jesus as the Lord of my life? How many of us can say, I've really counted the cost and everything else in this world is dung in comparison to Christ? Folks, we've got to chase hard after God. We've got to pursue him so that we find him, he finds us, and then he slays our flesh so he can resurrect us in new power. Amen? God's not offering you an improved old life. He's offering you a totally new, brand new life, right? And that brand new life always starts on the far side of the cross. You can't get the new life without going to the cross. You can't get the resurrection without having a death. Today, we want to be saved, but we want Christ to do all the dying. No, no death for us, no dethronement for us, right? No dying for me. I want to stay the king in the little kingdom of my soul and wear my gold-plated crown and have the pride of a Caesar, yet be so weak and so spiritually unstable and bankrupt. But folks, I'm telling you, it's time that we decide to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, and there we die. It's time that we not just be a contributor to the cause of Christ. It's time that we be committed to the cause of Christ. Amen? Would you stand to your feet with me this morning as the worship team comes? And I'm just going to ask if you will just stand if you can. You don't have to if you can't. I'm just going to ask if you just kind of shut yourself in with God right now. I, I don't want you looking around at your neighbor, looking at your watch or checking your phone or anything like that. I just I want you to just focus on the Lord. Because there's a couple questions I want to ask you that I can't answer for you. Your spouse can't answer them for you. Only you can answer these questions. And the first question I want to ask you is this. Are you a pig or a chicken? Are you a pig or a chicken? Are you committed to Jesus? Or are you just making a contribution to him? And you know, people often wonder, why does the church of America seem to be so powerless and effective today? Ineffective today? Maybe it's because we're so full of ourselves and we haven't really died. Folks, we're supposed to be dead. We're supposed to be dead. I'm telling you, you handle your problems different when you're a dead person. When you die to the flesh, you're not going to get bitter. You're not going to get unforgiving. You're not going to get angry. we got to slay the flesh, folks. we got to get on the cross, get that flesh there, and nail it there. Why? Because God wants to resurrect us in new life and new power. Folks, we're living in the Laodicean church age, the lukewarm church age, where for some people it's just cool and hip to be a Christian. You know, oh yeah, I go to church. You know, I throw my buck in the offering. You know, it's all good. But listen, we live in this Laodicean church age where it's lukewarm. We're lukewarm. Jesus said in Revelation, if you're not hot or cold but lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, right? That tells me you're either a fireball, a snowball, or you're going to be a spitball. I don't want you to be a spitball. And God knows I don't want you to be cold. you got to be hot. I'm 
telling you, the early church believers were so committed, they literally laid their lives down for the gospel. They were burned as human torches to light the streets of Rome. They went to the Colosseum and were ripped apart by the lions. They went into slavery so somebody else could go free. They were committed. They were serious. They weren't playing games with God. And you know what? They walked in great power. They healed the sick. They raised the dead. They cast out devils. But guess what I've discovered? I've discovered it's hard to cast out the demons that you become friends with. It's hard to cast out the demons that you party with every weekend. Folks, we can't snuggle up with sin and self. We've got to crucify it. We have to choose today. Choose today to slay our flesh. Amen? To make Jesus the Lord of our life. What do you think God can do with the person who is fully surrendered and committed to Jesus? Folks, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that this world, Jesus, is coming pretty quick. Come on, Russia, Iran, and Turkey have already formed an alliance. They announced it at the recent UN meeting. That is the battle of Gog and Magog is getting set up. There's the alliance right there. It's already happening. China is getting their panties in a bunch. I'm telling you, things are happening. The Euphrates River, scientists are telling us it's drying up, and it's going to be dried up in just a couple of years. And the Bible tells us that the Euphrates River will dry up. We are coming so close to Jesus coming back. And if Jesus would send an angel to you this week and would say to you this week, I'm coming back August 20th at 12 noon. How different would you live your life? spend hours every night watching Netflix, being on social media? Would you desperately be trying to get your family and your friends that you love so much to come into the kingdom before it's too late? Would you be concerned about trying to get that new car, that new house, that bigger boat? The things of this world grow strangely dim when we look in the light of his glory. Folks, he's coming and he's coming soon. And if you read the parable that Jesus said about the ten virgins, they were all virgins, they were all Christians. Five of them didn't make it because they weren't prepared. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be left behind when the rapture takes place. People that come to church faithful every week because it's more than just believing in Jesus. John 3.16 says you should not perish. You should not perish. You can still perish believing in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. They're not going to heaven. It's more than just making a confession of Christ. If we truly receive Jesus as our Savior, we are then justified. Made us if we never sinned. But if we really have that justification, then what we call sanctification will follow. That means my life will start to change. I won't keep doing all the sinful things I used to do. I won't keep being bound up in all of the stuff I used to be bound up in. I'm changing. I'm growing. I'm becoming more like Christ. And if that's not happening, then you did not genuinely get saved. You might have prayed a prayer, but I could teach a bird to repeat after me. So if there's true justification, there will be true sanctification. It's time that we make Jesus the Lord of our life. You may know him as Savior today, praise God. But do you know him as Lord? Because when you make him the Lord of your life, he is Lord over your screen time. He's Lord over your computer history, your search history. He's Lord over your TV selection, your remote control. He's Lord over your wallet. He's Lord over your marriage. He's Lord over your job. He is Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. So we're going to sing this old song of the church, I have decided to follow Jesus. And when we say that word follow in this song, we mean all the way to the cross where we lay down upon it we get crucified there. I'm going to sing this song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, Tim, I've been pricked in my conscience. My heart is pricked. The Holy Spirit is dealing with me. I need to really truly make a step of faith and I want Jesus to be the Lord 
of my life. I don't want to just keep making contribution to Jesus. I want to be fully committed to him. And I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to say, if that's you, why we sing the song, I just want you to come and line up across the front. I'm going to pray with you at the end. But either be serious about it or don't. Do or don't. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you're ready to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I want to be fully surrendered to you. And I want you to come.